0: Welcome to the podcast edition of Dream Talk Radio. I'm your host, Ann Hill, and every week I explore topics related to dreams, sleep, health, culture, and consciousness. Dream Talk Radio airs every Thursday from 9 to 10 a.m. Pacific Time on KOWS 107.3 FM in Occidental California. And you can catch the live stream at www.kows.fm. To find out more about Dream Talk Radio, visit my website at anhill.org. That's annehil org. Meanwhile, I hope you enjoy this edition of Dream Talk Radio. Today I have a, another special guest, I should say a return special guest, uh, for in celebration of the Feast of Samhain, which is literally summer's end, um, also known as the Day of the Dead and various other names, Halloween among them. And uh, on the phone with me today is Robert Moss, author and dreamer and teacher of dreams, uh, who we spoke with in back in, I think it was July, About his most recent book, The Secret History of Dreaming, but I've asked him back today to talk about the idea of dreaming with the dead, visitation dreams, dreams of the ancestors, and what the the dead have to tell us and show us in their dreams. And particularly, I'm hoping we can uh, talk about his book from back from 2005, The Dreamer's Book of the Dead. And you can, uh, check out all of Robert's books at mossdreams.com. But uh, for now, Robert, welcome back to Dream Talk. How are you, Anne?
1: Good to be dreaming with you. Yes,
0: very good. Thank you. I'm doing well. How about you?
1: I'm fine.
0: Good. Very good. I lose
1: myself in vapor trails sometimes because I travel a great deal in this world as well as the other world, as you know.
0: (laughs) Yes, right. Well, now, which world are you coming back from? Well, I've
1: just been in Eastern Europe for ten days. It was an extraordinary time, and I've really been engaged in what I call dream archaeology another aspect of which is cultural soul recovery i found it very interesting teaching recently in places like lithuania and romania where people are coming out of a long and wretched and horrible history of oppression and invasion and so on and are looking for their roots and are looking to dreaming as one of the tools so i had large enthusiastic groups We're engaged in accessing ancestral wisdom in those places, and we managed to establish the lines and bring through some extraordinary things. I mean, direct knowledge of the goddess tradition, which survived longer in Lithuania than any other European country, for example, from, in my case, an ancient Gine, an ancient priestess of the earth goddess Shemina of Lithuania. This is good stuff.
0: Oh yes, that sounds fascinating. So, was it? Uh, were, sounds like people were very receptive to the whole idea. Well,
1: extraordinarily so. As a matter of fact, I've I've put it on my on my calendar for next year. I'm going back to Eastern Europe as well as a number of other places, essentially to pursue what I call dream archaeology, by which I mean the combination. Of using direct experiential shamanic modes of dream travel to contact ancient sources, authentic sources of transmission of ancient rituals of healing and methods and traditions, combining that with the best of scholarship and science so we don't leave it mm-hmm. floating around in some new age soup, but grounded in fact and, you know, good work.
0: Well, so that's, that's fascinating. Now, um, if you could sum up, I, it's probably impossible to sum up, but along the theme of, you know, what the ancestors have to tell us, what, what came through, what themes came through most strongly in your work in Lithuania and-
1: well, uh, we can talk generally, but when you point me to Lithuania, I'm going to be specific. I mean, I wrote a couple of blog pieces about this that people can track. If you go to com you'll find my blog. For example, Lithuania is the country of Baltic amber, the black gold of the Baltic, uh, the Romans built roads as far north as Lithuania to access that amber, which was more valuable than gold once upon a time. In the traditional practices of that area, amber is terribly important. And today in village white witchcraft and so on, amber is still used, for example, for extracting things that bring disease or bring, you know, bad energy, or for transferring healing energy, and amber has also been used uh, in divination. And uh, I learned a great deal about that in conscious dreaming, in the sort of group shamanic dream travels that I arrange uh, from somebody on the inner planes who knew a great deal about it. And then, in the way of synchronicity, I was invited by a village healer from Western Lithuania to go and stay with her and learn how she works with amber and the trees in a tradition handed down mother to daughter, mother to daughter, which she had never shared with any man or and had never allowed the songs to be written down. So I received that invitation in ordinary reality because i dreamed my way into it. And this has been the pattern of my life. Wherever I go, I find myself dreaming into the customs and also the languages of different people. And being a lazy linguist, this is sometimes a bit of a chore that I now have to, you know, find find out the meaning of these funny words, some of which are archaic. Right. But, but my left brain skeptic likes having the funny words, because when I can check them out, and they turn out to mean something, I have objective confirmation that my dream has taken me into a real world that can be tracked and verified.
0: So uh, when you unearth these rituals in your dream archaeology, what then do you feel compelled or called to to do with them? Do you reenact them in some way? Well, we're
1: playing with that. I mean, picture the context. I'm in a circle of 45 Lithuanians with a very gifted translator who are journeying together through gateways we establish into the realm of the ancestors, and they immediately, in the context of their lives, bringing back and applying to their everyday life and understanding what they have learned. So, I mean, there's no delay at all. One of the things I'm doing is I'm facilitating communal and collective adventures in connecting with ancestral sources and and restoring the transmission lines that might have been interrupted. Mm -hmm. I mean, so that's direct. For me, I mean, as a writer, I'm writing about all of this. I I think one of my new books will flow from this. In my personal practice, I have brought back some things that I learned in these places, which I may now experiment with with my local groups. I mean, to see whether we can do divination and healing and invocation rituals that work for us, borrowing from these traditions, that we might experiment with that up on a very special mountain where I lead some of my retreats next weekend. Yes. Um, so, you know, it, it, it's ongoing.
0: Yes. Well, now I, I have to bring up one question because uh, it's floating around in the back of my mind, and I've thought of it three times. And so, if I think of something three times, I always three times have to make it. Charm. That's exactly right. So, how do you respond to uh, questions of uh, cultural appropriation? Well,
1: I'm, I'm sort of stuttering a bit because I don't understand how it arises if you're talking about people having direct access and acting as mediator to people in terms of the culture itself, um, and receiving an invitation to borrow and take, which was unsought well, spontaneously given. Well, you know, I, I guess what,
0: why I'm asking is because this has come up, uh, well, in my own community. Uh, I mean, if you're a sensitive dreamer and you're dreaming on a piece of land, you're, you're picking up uh, the waves of dream information from that from the indigenous people of that land. And so you can then go on and and you know talk about it and and give all due respect and then move forward on it. And part of the backlash that happened mostly uh, most strongly in the 80s, I would say, amongst my community, uh, is that we got accused of you know the First Nations people around here of cultural appropriation. How can you do this if you haven't been trained by our elders, et cetera? So well, I'm just me, curious put- how you how you maneuver that one.
1: Well. The- I don't maneuver it. I respond in personal terms based on personal and direct experiences. Let me put it in a First Nations context. I mean, I speak some Mohawk, as you probably know, because mm-hmm. of my dreams. I didn't seek for that connection to go as deep as it, as it went, and I didn't become an ersatz Mohawk. But at one point in my life, a Mohawk healing woman, a grandmother from the Six Nations Reserve in Ontario, came to one of my workshops and said, I've come to you because I've heard you dream the way my ancestors dreamed, and we need to get it back. And I was almost in tears because I had indeed, in my opinion, dreamed of some of her ancestors from 300 years ago, speaking to me in archaic Mohawk, which I had to work for years, really, to decipher. She had some big experiences, and she gifted us with some big experiences in that circle. She then invited me to go to her reservation in Ontario, and spend a day teaching 50 Mohawk speakers, all women who had never invited a non-Iroquois Indian or a a man to join their circle before, teaching them methods of dreaming in the way that I believe their ancestors dreamed. So this is the reverse of appropriation. This is an example of an outsider being invited in dreaming, into a world that, frankly, I would probably never have chosen to enter except for the dream invitation so strong, and then becoming a mediator and a facilitator for a traditional people to get back some of their own traditions which had been interrupted. And that's an interesting story.
0: Well, and that actually, that answers the critique, really, because it is giving back to the existing line of that culture what has been retrieved. In, and it sounds in what it like what is in a, a respectful way.
1: I don't well yes I think that's one way of looking at it. I mean in my person I mean our, our lives are so individual. I mean we we we're united by our common humanity that we have things in common but Each story is a singular story and deserves to be looked at that way. In the case of this funny character's story that is talking to you at the moment, um, although I always play with the idea that I have maximum choice and don't have to do anything, that nothing is written, I haven't necessarily sought out any of these connections with different ancient and indigenous cultures that have found me. I have been spurred by my dreams. Rather, as Jung said, that everything important in his life began with a dream that guided his research. My research and my travels have been guided as far back as I can remember by dreams of invitation— Some of the invitations I have refused, for example, I remember having very vivid dreams some years ago of an Inuit shaman who told me how to contact him through a family in Edmonton uh, in Canada. I did not go. I received an invitation from a Mayan shaman in Belize who sent his jaguar, I believe, an energy form into my bedroom and showed me some of his stuff. I did not go to Belize. So I've actually Mm -hmm. rejected more of these Mm -hmm. invitations than I have accepted. I mean, I have one body. I'm going to have some discernment about how many places I deploy it in, but I'm I'm not (laughs) somebody who has been on a path of going to different cultures other than my own for the secrets of the universe. I mean, in my roots, I'm Celtic and British, Mm. and my fierce Scottish ancestors in particular tend to walk through my dreams from time to time saying, look here, laddie, we know a thing also, talk to us. (laughs) (laughs)
0: Well, and so were they happy that you well, of course, you know, Yeats was Irish so they they may have been a little bristling in the spine hairs there, too Well,
1: Yeats is, let's not forget although Yeats is quintessentially an Irish poet he is um, Anglo-Irish and very much so I remember meeting one of his descendants at a local do in the Northeast and the local Irish were astonished that uh, the current Yeats speaks like an English gentleman they they, they they wanted the brogue they wanted the Irishman but Yeats of course comes from uh, a a type of Irishman that is very familiar and becomes very Irish but i mean in his roots and in his family he a Brit as much as an Irishman
0: well sure and he was he was raised uh, he lived in the time when the whole um people were trying to 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 become more uh more british you know it was a sort of a slur to be called irish at that time
1: well, and yet Yeats, as you know, Yeats and his circle were part of the great Irish Romantic r- revival. They yes. chose to apply themselves to breathing life into into the world of Cuchulain and the world of the uh, the world of the Irish myths and the Irish stories. And it was a group of those people who were not Catholic but Protestant by yes. upbringing and British rather than Irish in their in their in their family inheritance who did so much to revive the image of, of, of Ireland in that time.
0: Well, and since we are here on one of the major Celtic holidays, Samhain, uh, Halloween, the Feast of the Dead, and the the end of summer, let's talk about dreams and the kind of dreams that come about, that that arise just by virtue of where we are in the sun cycle, in the solar cycle.
1: Well, this is, as you know, I mean, this is a time when the connection between the dead and the living is expected to be going on even more profusely than than at other Mm times. Whether that is partly uh, camouflaged and buried under all the sort of electrified cobwebs and greeting cards industry and, and candy overdose stuff that the American Halloween has brought in, I don't know. That probably stirs up the spirit activity. But certainly this is a time of acknowledgement and celebration and respect for the dead and of concern for clear communication between the dead and the living, which was done traditionally, as you probably know, with some discernment. You know, this is a time traditionally, if you know what you're doing, well, you don't seek unregulated, uncontrolled intercourse with the world of the dead because, you know, some people among the in the realm of the dead are people you do not want to have close connections with right. because they're the wrong aspect of the dead. They come bringing unfinished business and cravings and addictions and so on, and you don't necessarily want them around. So you feed them and respect them. But, you you know, you set it within limits and boundaries, which is something that we're not very good at doing because most of us in our culture are not schooled to understand but in a sense, the dead are always with us, they're always around. There's nothing exotic or supernatural about that. I mean, in rural areas in Ireland, they would tell you the same thing. I mean, any village you stop by, I mean, the dead are always with us, they're always around, and you want to have some discernment about how you interact with them.
0: Mm-hmm. I find that people actually dream more of their, descendant, uh, their, their ancestors, the, their beloved dead, around this time of year. And it, I also find that people's dreams of the dead, those who have passed on, is one of the really the gateways into uh, developing more of an interest in dreams. Because, you know, sometimes those visitation dreams are just so real. It's palpable. You can smell the person's aftershave or you can, you know, you can stroke their hair and you can just feel their presence so strongly. So it really begs the question for many people, just what are these dreams up to?
1: Well, I I think both things that you said were well stated, and I agree with them. The the first is that for many of us in our society, it is a dream, a vivid dream of, of of the dead, of a departed person who is living on the other side of our world that brings them alive to the meaning and importance and nature of dreaming. I mean, I would say that over the years, the number one reason why people in any environment have chosen to tell me a dream i'm not talking about the workshops i'm talking about any situation at all number one reason why most people have chosen to tell me a dream is they have dreamed of someone who has died and the dream was real and they needed confirmation that it was for real and some guidance sometimes on how to deal with it and secondly yes i mean this time of year i think there is a notable increase in the number of dreams and the quality of dreams involving the dead and involving ancestral stuff i mean i lead and quite lively online forums at spiritualityhealth.com, and I'd notice among the many dreams that are shared every day in that forum, as well as in my personal email and other media I have access to, I see hundreds of dream reports every day. Anne, as you probably mm-hmm. know, I would say that there is a profusion right now of dream encounters with the departed, generally happy and unproblematic ones, by the way. But along with the, and along with those dreams, there's a great deal of ancestral material in which people seem to be dreaming into ritual practices that the ancestors may have observed around this time. I've had a series of dreams of my own over the last week, which I think have taken me spontaneously into scenes of things that may have been done around Samhain in the old days.
0: Mm hmm we are speaking with Robert Moss, author and teacher and dreamer. Uh, you can reach his website at mossdreams.com, and we're talking about dreaming of the dead or dreaming in this in this time of the year, which is the the Celtic New Year, the Feast of Samhain. So that's that's very interesting. You would you could sum up the you know the, all the hundreds of dream reports you see every day. You do see these sort of clear. It's surprising to me, I guess, when you say that the dreams that people are having of the dead are are mostly sort of joyful and, and, and relatively free of conflict. Well, yes,
1: I would say that, and yet I would add that some of these dreams carry a sense of obligation, not necessarily a burdensome sense of obligation. I've noticed a few dreams in the last couple of days of the many that I see in which the message seems to be that the the departed person would like to be honored and celebrated in this season in, in in a direct and personal way, for example, by the survivors putting out food and other things that the departed person would have liked. I mean, this is the ancestral way of honoring the dead. And I've looked at a couple of dreams in the last 24 hours in which it seems that the departed person is really indicating, hey, I want to have a party. In my honor, I want to have cake or I want to have hot dogs or I want to have whiskey or whatever, and I want you to put it out for me and remember me at this time of year. I mean, that's a sort of rather happy kind of obligation. And the dreamers are disposed to fulfill that obligation.
0: That is wonderful. You know, it reminds me, I should tell you about one of the traditions we have. Actually, a friend of mine usually organizes this, and this is the first year in several years she won't be doing it, but it's called the Dinner with the Dead. Hmm. And it happens at a soup kitchen in San Francisco. which is generous enough to allow us the evening. And she makes all of these novena candles, you know, those tall ones. And she uh, covers them with with, uh, pictures of people's beloved dead or important people. I mean, I think I have one of George Carlin and Abby Hoffman and, you know, all the the really influential people of the culture. And people bring pictures of their own dead and there's an altar in the middle for people's... uh, Pictures And then we just basically create sacred space and invite all of our beloved dead in to eat with us. And it's a huge potluck. And we just take over the soup kitchen and everybody sits around and every so often, somebody will stand up and, you know, raise a glass and toast to the dead. And it's just that. And then when the meal is over, you know we're raising money. It's usually a benefit for something, and there's a big cauldron in the center where people can give their donations in honor of their beloved dead. And then it's over. We thank the dead. We, you know, dismiss all of the directions and close the circle and clean up, and that's it. It's so I was beautiful. W- I was
1: waiting for you to tell me. It sounds wonderful. I was just waiting for you to tell me how you end things because, from my point of view, and perhaps this is what you just said, this needs to be ended with bidding the dead farewell and sending them on their way. Oh,
0: yes. Oh, most definitely. I mean, you've
1: invited every you understand this perfectly well, I think, you've invited everybody in for this feast. At the end of it, it's desirable to send them away with you love bet. and farewell.
0: Yeah, no, no, that is definitely, and and that has to happen before people start trickling away too. Uh-huh. When that's the first right, that's trickles right. happen, we say, okay, wait a second. If yeah, if, you let,
1: if you let people trickle away without doing that, they might trickle trickle away with some of the dead. Behind yeah, them.
0: and I think it's, as you say, it's important to be mindful at the beginning to sort of set up the filters in what you're saying to invite those dead that we, you know we greet joyously and the beloved dead because they're. There are some spirits around there with an agenda that's maybe not in our complete best interests.
1: Well, that's right. I mean, every society that understands that interaction between the dead and the living is not supernatural, not weird, but part of the pattern of life, which is most human societies until recently, also understands that you want to screen and discriminate your encounters Mm -hmm. with the dead. You do not want to be mixed up with the dense energy of the dead, because the dead live on on several levels of energy, and you do not want to be embroiled if you're rational or sane with the dense addictive, you know, levels of the the dead that might be around. I mean, having said that, let me just put this in a a broad brush picture for a moment. The the, The reason why I contend that encounters with the dead are not weird, not supernatural, not extraordinary, is threefold. First of all, our dead may be around because they haven't moved on. That might be okay. They might think that we need some help and that might be okay for a while, or they might be around because they're stuck, lost, confused, addicted, which is not okay. Secondly, they come visiting, and of course, as we're discussing around this time of year, close to the traditional Days of the Dead, close to Salon and so on, um, you know, there is a traditional understanding that we might want to be receptive to visitations from the departed, And and the departed come visiting for all the reasons we call on each other and then some, and thirdly, of course, in dreaming, as you know, we travel into many realms, including the realms where the departed are at home, and this, in fact, is the main source of human belief in an afterlife and mm-hmm. the main source of representations of the geography of the afterlife that survived to us not only in personal accounts but in literary accounts and sacred texts including the Tibetan Book of the Dead and so on. These reports, these accounts, these geographies are constructed from dream travels, visionary travels, into the realms of the departed are at home. So on any night of the week, any one of us, whether or not we remember it with clarity, may find ourselves traveling into the realms where the dead are alive and at home. So in all these respects, for all these reasons, uh, particularly in dreaming, encounters with the departed are not uncommon, not weird, and certainly not supernatural. They're natural.
0: That's right. Well, now I have a question for you. This actually brings up a fascinating topic of dream geography. One somebody once referred to the to the spirit world, the other world as as containing uh many uh sort of bioregions you know there was a sort of a Norse bioregion and a kind of a Celtic bioregion and a germanic but as a way of trying to make a some sort of a map or some develop some kind of understanding of the all the different places you can go when you go visiting the other side how do you How do you discern that or how do you where's your compass in all of your travels where's my compass <laughs> Well, I mean, hopefully it's on your person somewhere, but how do you how do you are you able to just jump from place to place or how do you how do you understand that whole geography, I guess is my question.
1: Well, the geography is always being updated, but let's let's before I attempt a larger response, let me comment on what you're describing as bioregions. I think of these as, as collective belief territories,
0: collective uh-huh. belief
1: systems. And, um, you know, you can visit them uh, if you can figure out how to get in and if you have a or if you have an invitation or if you have a clear necessity to go there. Um, If you're not invited in and have no clear necessity, you may not really get there. I remember once, I mean, to make this personal again. When I was studying Tibetan Buddhism, which uh, which I, I know relatively little about, but I had been I'd been studying the different translations of the Tibetan Book of the Dead and Circle in Prashay and I had met some people who are much more profound students of Tibetan Buddhism than I will ever be. I found myself visiting in a sort of conscious dream state uh, a sort of Tibetan Buddhist um, mm-hmm. afterlife locale. It was covered it was absolutely covered by a dome and to begin with, I could really see nothing through the dome. Then I began to see that inside it there was really a very rich and prolix geography. I mean, a city of many temples and palaces, and so I'm quite intriguing with a very complicated oriental gate with many locks that you'd have to figure out how to open. And I decided, well, that's fine, but that's actually not a place I need to visit. Mm-hmm. I, I don't think I want to spend too much time in the Nordic Valhalla. I think there's too much drinking and fighting and so <laughs> on going on from what I noted. It's not the kind of afterlife that I particularly want to hang out in. I don't think I want to spend too much time in the Catholic Purgatory, <laughs> which, was, which was constructed. You want to know how these geographies are constructed. I mean, you can study that. The great French medievalist Jacques Goff wrote a wonderful book called The Making of Purgatory which is about how some brilliant imagineers of the Catholic Church basically created an imaginal locale – in part, you know, so that the church could make money by selling indulgences and selling masses to get people out faster, but, but nonetheless, the purgatory of the Catholic imagination actually exists. People have been going there for a thousand years or so and they'll probably continue to go there. It is a, it is a structure it is a structure a geography created by the apl- application of the human imagination, and in these realms, which are part of the imaginal plane of reality, thoughts take form very quickly and they are stable and structures that are created may last longer than structures on this earth. So it's very interesting to observe the nature of reality creation in these realms.
0: It's like being stuck in a really bad movie.
1: (laughs) Yeah, and you could be stuck there in the same seat for a very long time, (laughs) unless, of course, you know, your imagination comes alive, gets jump-started. I mean, My impression is that even more than in this life, People find themselves in the afterlife, in territories that are conditioned by their imagination or lack thereof. I mean, so, for example, if you have been taught to believe that after death you go into a kind of coma until the last judgment when you're supposed to wake up, as some Protestant uh, sects teach, then you might be trying to stay asleep for a very long time after death and you start waking up and you think you're a bad person because this is against religious instruction and you have difficulty. You also have difficulty, of course, if you've been taught that there is no afterlife at all because then you're absolutely unprepared to discover. You still have a body that knows pleasure and pain. Things are still going on around you. You may spend a very long time not understanding, actually, that you're dead.
0: Mm-hmm. This is one of the m- most fascinating parts of your book, The Dreamer's Book of the Dead, uh, I, that I found most fascinating, which is your description of meeting in a, in a basically in a trance state or an induced dream state, meeting various spirits of the dead and talking to them, interviewing them basically, about their experience crossing over. I mean, I think that was just fascinating because, and my hunch, you know, I've never actually done that exact experiment, but it had the ring of truth about it. I think people do have very different experiences after they, they die from this plane.
1: Well, that was a pretty interesting episode in my life because my yates and, and i, I 'm prepared to spend judgment on whether william butler yates i 've dreamed about and had travels with much of my life is the spirit of Yeats or the essence of yates 's teaching or the part of me that is yates in right. either way it 's a creative you know situation uh, The, the yates of my of my personal mythic life at that time announced that he wanted to introduce me to a number of people who would describe first hand their experience of the afterlife. And it turned out that some of these people have historical identities, not uninteresting historical identities. One of them was the first major translator Of some of the Irish mythic cycles, for example, Kuno Maya, and I'm sort of astonished to be hearing from these people about their experience of transits in the afterlife and what happens to successive energy bodies after death. I put it in in my book because I'm an adventurous type, and it's good material, but it also seemed to me, based upon other perceptions and observations that I've made, to have some reality, some truth, and some heuristic, I mean, some educational Mm -hmm. quality. For example, it's important to understand, if you go deeply into these things, that not only do you survive death, not only does consciousness survive death, but that you survive death with more than one subtle body. Uh, this is this is understood perhaps by people who study Eastern philosophy and find the Sanskrit terminology, etc. But there is a Western understanding and observation. In fact, there's a universal understanding and observation among these things for people who are alive in spirit and alive in dreaming. And I learnt a great deal about what happened what should happen and what you don't want to happen to the so-called astral body, for example, after death. And I put that in the book. So The Dreamer's Book of the Dead is a pretty radical, I mean, a pretty wild account of um, many things relating to uh, our condition in in a world where interaction with the departed is actually frequent and our future as people who will live for many more years after death than we're living in this lifetime and might need to know more about that.
0: Well, and it was you know I, I had bought this book several years ago, and it had stayed on my shelf and then my uh, father died not this past summer but the one before and you know there I was well, I thought, okay, well, this is as good a time as any in fact it's probably better than most as a time to pick up this book and so it it actually really helped me um, reading through the book in you know bits and pieces, and uh, just because I was having a lot of dreams about my father and where he was, and you know of course I'm, I have a s- significant amount of experience traveling back and forth between realms of consciousness and so i could sort of see him in one place but then i couldn't see him for a while and it was really interesting to touch into all the different ways that people have imagined their own death it really yep. points out once again the the very close the, the seams of dreaming and dying you know the, how close those seams are in the rock of consciousness i guess
1: I think that dreaming is the best preparation for dying because we become accustomed to traveling in a different dimension. We become familiar with roads and territories beyond the ordinary world. Some of these may be roads we walk after death. I mean, others are roads in non-ordinary reality, it's interesting to know about. So I've noticed that one of the really good ways we can help each other to prepare for the big journey that follows death is simply to open and hold a space for each other's dreams. I mean, even without any discussion or interpretation, simply to encourage each other without preaching to make room for dreams and to not immediately review or analyze or categorize what's going on in the dream so much as honoring and respecting the fact that a dream may be a journey or a visitation through which we become aware of the conditions of the larger reality. We've lost the Ars moriendi, the art of dying in Western Mm -hmm. society. I mean, there are people of religious faith who hold certain convictions and beliefs about what will happen after death, which may or may not be satisfied when they die. But by and large, we do not have a practice. Our preparation for the journey itself, and uh, dreaming—dreaming—is the way we can practice for death and dying, and and learn firsthand about things that are too important to take on trust as secondhand beliefs.
0: Well, I absolutely think that's true, and it reminds me of all of the accounts of people having dreams of. Loved ones who have passed on, and the—I mean—the main message of the dream seems to be: I'm okay. In fact, I'm happier now than I ever have been. And by the way, you don't have to be afraid of this. I mean, just that one little piece, like I don't have to be afraid of my own death, really kind of opens the door into that whole idea of how to die, how to die well. I think that
1: is one of the most valuable messages that comes through. Through this interaction with the departed in dreams, that there's life after death, that uh, it's fine, that it may be better than the life that the person who departed was experiencing before they died. Of course, not all encounters with the departed are happy, because not all of the departed are happy, and because there's a lot of unfinished business and things to be dealt with. I mean, Yeats with a poetic insight, for example, said that one of the important phases of the afterlife to understand is what he called the dreaming back. I find this a very helpful concept. What Yeats meant by the dreaming back was this. He came to believe through his own study of these things, which was extensive, that one of the things that our departed need to do after death is they need to come to clarity and understanding of what went on and what did not go on in the life they just finished. This is not necessarily about unfinished business. It may involve unfinished business. But it is understanding what they did and what they failed to do in that life, achieving full clarity on the, on, on, on the, on the sources of the events that might have been concealed from them during that life and getting the full mm-hmm. picture. They need to do that. This may be a preliminary to making the right decisions about where they're going to go next and what's going to follow. And Yates maintained that in dream interaction between the dead and the living, uh, one of the things going on for the dead is that they are dreaming back, trying to understand in through dream connection with their survivors what the story was. Mm-hmm. This, this is a simple and profound idea, which I've rarely seen discussed with any clarity anywhere else. Um, so this is, as I say, this is not just about unfinished business. This is about trying to get the story straight. And I see a lot of that now as I appraise the dreams that are brought to me with that idea in mind.
0: Well, that's, that's fascinating. And it, uh makes me wonder, uh, it sounds akin to the idea that we practice in some forms of dream work, which I know this part of your form of dream work, The well, only the dreamer knows for sure what his or her dream really means. And so it makes me wonder, well, as we're there, we've passed on, but we're in this sort of intermediate phase of having to sift through and make sense of or create a, some sort of a understanding of what happened in our life, whether, whether our version is is the true one just by virtue of it coming from us. Do you know what I mean? Or whether there's some sort of external authority in that afterlife saying, no, you still haven't figured it out, you got to go back and, you know, have this person as your mother-in-law once again, or whatever that is.
1: Well, I think whether we're alive, dead, dreaming, or awake, we are all engaged, whether we realize it or not, in making and living stories. If we don't understand that a lot of this dead or living, dreaming or waking, is about choosing the story that you're living, then we are probably trapping ourselves inside old stories, little stories, stories constructed for us by others, and damning ourselves to a certain extent to go on you know, through old maneuvers and old motions. I mean, there is great proactive, forward-moving power in the idea that we want to construct and create a story for ourselves every day. And and so, I mean, I'm going far beyond what Yeats said with The mm-hmm. Dreaming Back, but I think that, as I say, dead or living, we, we want to be engaged in the business, in the process of finding the story that suits us, that is right for us. And, you know, when you get into these realms of the afterlife, which closely closely resemble the conditions of the imaginal plane in in general, the the realm of true imagination where thoughts become things very rapidly and palaces and temples and schools are constructed by by imagination. When you get into those realms, you understand how important uh, the power of story, the power of imagination or lack thereof is because it generates the realities that people inhabit. That is true on our world too, but because the processes are slower and there are more bricks and mortar and other things involved, we don't see it. We don't see the extent to which the world that we inhabit right now is generated by the imagination and that the lives we live in or or suffocate in are generated by our power to make story or our inability to do that.
0: Well, that's so true. Uh, You're listening to Dream Talk Radio. I'm your host, Anne Hill, and with me on the phone is Robert Moss, author of The Dreamer's Book of the Dead, The Secret History of Dreaming, and numerous other really great books on dreams. You can contact him at mossdreams.com and find his blog and all sorts of other things. Um, Robert, one of the things that's been sort of floating around in the back of my mind here as we've been talking is I'm remembering my grandmother. And, you know, she was she was a sort of a feisty gal, but not too outlandish of a life back in the day. And But one of the things that she said to me when, she, when I was probably about eight or 10, where she said, you know, when I die, I really want to go to the part of heaven that has a library so I can finally understand all of the things that took place in history that I either didn't have time to learn about or I really still am questioning about. And I just was so delighted with the idea of my grandmother being in some library with windows down into the world of the living I, that's To this day, that's where I imagine her being, and it sort of set up in me this idea of of the afterlife as a really friendly, curious place.
1: What a wonderful travel plan for your grandmother. Wouldn't it be interesting if you were able to visit her there and see whether she is in that library and what that library is like? I mean, I would actually oh, yes. play with the idea that that could be a travel play, plan for a conscious dream journey to find her there. You're reminding me about my favorite professor. I mean, I grew up in Australia and I first went to school, went to college at the Australian National University, where I taught for a while. And a very colorful character was the head of the history department. He was Australia's most famous historian at the time. His name was Manning Clark. He was a good friend and a great patron of mine. And some years after his death, in one of the series of dreams of Manning, my, my dead favorite professor, I found him in a wonderful library that reminded me of the School of Advanced Studies at the university we had both been at. And he showed me that he was, the kind of history he was working on, the kind of history he was working on now in this wonderful library involved comparing lives being lived in different times that were connected by a secret logic, because the people in those different lives and different periods were, in a sense, counterparts of each other in a kind of multi-dimensional deal. And uh, so it wasn't just about reincarnation. It wasn't just about saying that so-and-so, that Lenin, for example, uh, was this tyrant of ancient Sicily or, or resembled him. It was about looking at how, like cogwheels, the life of Lenin, who Panning was always fascinated by, might have might have intersected and, and moved together with the life of, I think it was Dionysius of Syracuse, an ancient mm. Sicilian tyrant. And as a historian myself, I was fascinated by this meta-history that my professor was practicing. Uh, but in a sense, even more exciting was the kind of library, the kind of research institute on the other side that he was attending. That was great. Let me tell you a story about my practice. got yes, time for sure. story.
0: Yeah, oh, absolutely.
1: So I was on my way some years ago. I had an appointment as Death. Notice the way I'm talking. I was going to play Death. It was my favorite workshop, it's called Making Death Your Ally. I learned it last weekend, actually, in a great right wow. place called The Dragon's Egg in Mystic, Connecticut. Some years ago, I had an appointment as Death in Cincinnati, as it happens. And I'm getting on the plane. I'm going to lead my workshop, Making Death Your Ally, in which I take people through the experience of their own death and the reckoning that they have to come to in the presence of their personal death, into glimpses of the possible afterlife, yeah. and conversation with the departed, blah, blah, blah. So I'm on my way to do this, and I'm playing the synchronicity game I always play. The first unusual or unexpected thing that happens on board the plane will be guidance on my mission. There's an old guy sitting in my seat. It turns out he's 93 years old. We swapped mm-hmm. seats. And, and this is interesting, I'm looking at him and, and it, things start out alright, then it turns out he's one of these sort of misery guts, who as the Irish say so puts the poor mouth on life, never had any luck never had any money, and women walked out at him and I'm thinking, oh God, how do I get through two hours with this misery guts do I put up a newspaper, a book, as a rampart and pretend pretend we never had an encounter then I look <laughs> at him trying to find some way of upping the conversation. I notice he's wearing a lot of golf club badges on his jacket, his cap. And I say, I see you like golf. I say this wearily because I do not know (laughs) about golf. But he perks up. Oh, yes, I love golf. I said, what's the best day of your life on a golf course? and he becomes a poet for a moment. He describes the sun burning the mist off the grass, a golf ball flying straight to the hole as he scores a hole in one, and for a moment he is a poet. Then his face falls and he says, but I told you I never had any luck, no one saw the hole in one. Oh, geez, I say, what happens if if you get a hole in one and no one sees it? Well, he says... You could fill out a form, and they send it down to the Carolinas, and they spin the barrel in a lottery, and the winner gets flown to Scotland to play golf at St. Andrews. Did you do that? I said, no, I told you. I never had any luck. Now, I'm desperate, so I play a game of imagination. I say to him, Jack, his name is Jack, I have a movie of your life going through my mind. In Do you want to hear it? Oh, yeah. In this movie, you fill out that form. They pulled your name. You're flying first class in a silver jet to Edinburgh. And you're drinking that single malt scotch flying first class. And now you're out on the course at St. Andrews. And I take him through a few holes at that course and this imaginal, you know, game that I'm playing with him. And then I'm running out of golf lingo. So I say, <laughs> at the fourth hole, there's this beautiful young woman waiting for you. What she you look like? I don't know his taste, so I'm vague. Oh, willowy, but curvy. What's the hair color? <laughs> uh, reddish, maybe. Oh, redhead. I never had any luck with redhead, he said. redheads, he says. Oh, geez, I lost it again. <laughs> so, well, it could be a trick of the light reddish highlights. She's playing golf with you, Jack. <sighs> I'm thinking you could hyperventilate. It probably wouldn't be a bad way for him to check out. But then I say, Jack, she takes you by the hand, and she takes you <sighs> to the library of the University of Edinburgh. And he's not disappointed. Huh. And he says, what's going on? I say, well, she sits you down and she puts books in front of you. What subjects? Geography, astronomy, history. He says, how did you know? Know what? I say, he said, those are the three subjects I would have loved to have studied if I'd ever gotten to college. I'm a high school dropper. Ah. Now, this moment, Jack's understanding changed. I had not mentioned the word death. I had not mentioned the word dream. But by the end of the flight, he had volunteered that he would write to the women who left Who left him to make all well? He would settle some estate business, and in effect, without saying it, he would be ready for his date with death. And the last words we exchanged leaving the flight were about the library in that university, which is not necessarily in Scotland in that trip to that golf course, mm-hmm. not necessarily St. Andrews. He wrote to me afterwards, thanking me for the most profound experience of his life. And although I haven't heard from him since, I'm pretty sure that when he checked out, which I think must have happened by now, mm-hmm. Jack was flying in a silver jet to a library in the non-ordinary reality. So in that story, I guess I've actually uh, done a bit more than you asked. I've given an example of how, through the imagination, we can help each other to find the right map, mm-hmm. the right dream, the right pathway, in this case, the right pathway into the next world.
0: Yes, I think you're, you're absolutely right. What a lovely story. Thank you for sharing that.
1: <laughs> that was... It also gives you a feeling into how I live, because, as you know, I travel this world as a teacher who's followed a career path which there's no particular track in this culture I mean I help people to dream again and that involves a bunch of techniques which I think I've just been indicating Mm -hmm. it involves monitoring coincidence or synchronicity at at every turn it involves using the imagination it involves conscious dreaming and active imagining at every possible turning
0: yeah And, you know, it brings to mind, you mentioned Tibetan Buddhism earlier, uh, and I should just say we are talking with Robert Moss here on Dream Talk Radio, and uh, you're listening to K.O.W.S., At the same time, you're doing three things. You're listening to Dream Talk Radio on cows with Robert Moss. Multitasking, even for our listeners. Um, You mentioned Tibetan Buddhism earlier, and I don't know all that much about it, but I know that one of the the basic basic, uh, sort of principles of their ideas on dreams is that dreaming is to help us prepare for death and how to maneuver through the the levels of bardo and so on and so forth as we're leaving and so I I've, I've just sort of taken that as the truth, and so m- part of my orientation in dreams is to see, you know, is there some intimation here of crossing over? Is there is there a journey in this dream? Am I crossing over somewhere? Is there information for me for that eventuality, for that eventual trip?
1: Well, you see, this life is about a state. Uh, I think the word, I think the Tibetans apply it to to this physical life as well. This this is a transition state right here, right now. Uh, It is possible that some of the transitional states we enter when we leave this body in this physical universe will go on for longer in Earth time than this one does. So it's we we dream we dream for all sorts of reasons. We dream to awaken. I mean, dreaming is about waking up. Mm-hmm. I mean, we might do this in a sleep dream of a certain importance. I greatly value spontaneous sleep dreams because they have a certain kind of objectivity and just soness that I enjoy, but As you know from our conversations, I mean, I live like a dreamer 24-7. Everything that enters my field of perception might be a symbolic Mm -hmm. uh, event. In fact, as a matter of fact, I'm far more symbolist about waking life than I'm about dreams. I'm far more literalist about dreams than most dream analysts. Before I go off with symbolic levels of explanation, I will ask, is this dream a preview of a literal event in ordinary reality that could take place? And or is this dream an experience of a separate reality Mm. of real events? somewhere other than the ordinary world. I'll go in those two directions typically before I discuss the symbolic um, aspect of dreams. On the other hand, I'm a symbolist about absolutely everything that enters my field of perception in waking life. So um, dreaming is about waking. Dreaming is about waking to a deeper life. And the practice of dreaming in relation to working with sleep dreams for me is about finding ways to harness not only guidance and counsel, but to harness vital energy. From the deeper world we access in dreams and bring it into embodied life. So mm-hmm. if you ever come to one of my workshops, you'll find that although we spend some time discussing dreams, we are as quickly as possible performing them, moving with them, turning them into theater, turning them to in, into expressive art, and making sure we don't lose the soul energy, the vital energy that comes to us in dreams.
0: Well, you know, I think that's, that's so interesting and such a valuable service. And it really brings to mind one of the things that you talk about in The the Secret History of Dreaming, which is basically, you know, you're cheering us on, humanity, all of us, you know, on to being more of a dreaming culture. And so I've sort of been sitting with the question of, well, what what would a dreaming culture look like? What would it involve? What does that mean in the first place? And how, how would it be different or not from from the life that we have now, from the type of world we have now. And I think just the idea of be, having access to that, that kind of wisdom and that sort of uh, pers- uh, perspective on our lives is one really uh, important difference that would, w- that would take place if we were more attuned to dreaming in our lives.
1: I think if we I think when we become a dreaming society again because of course we have dreaming communities functioning now in yeah. quite a quite lively way within our society and they're growing when we become a dreaming society again I mean on the most practical social interactive level we will simply start the day as families or communities or office workers or colleagues or whatever by making time to share what we have that morning, whether it is something from the night or something observed in the way of synchronicity. And as we listen to each other's stories, thereby confirming each other's power as a storyteller, which is a very important power to claim for just a few minutes, we will harvest two things at least, um, in addition to some energy and fun and playfulness that comes from this kind of conversation. The first is we will see whether there is any guidance for the day or beyond the day itself in the dream or synchronicity material, any clues to the possible future that can help us make better choices, because dreams and synchronicity are constantly showing us what wants to happen in the world, and we Mm -hmm. do better by reading the messages about the possible future. And secondly, we will be alive and alert to messages about soul and its healing and soul remembering that come through in dreams through symbols from the world as well, because traditional peoples understand that one of the things going on in dreams is we see where the soul goes. We see what the soul wants. We see where we have lost pieces of soul, and thereby we learn how to get them back. And the work and play of a decent community in relation to soul and dreams is to tend to the dreams that people share, listing very carefully for clues as to where the soul has gone, how to bring it home back into the body, and how to honor what the soul wants. I mean, this mm-hmm. would be the start of the day.
0: Mm-hmm. You know, I was just talking with a, a gentleman yesterday from Samoa, who uh, we were talking about dreams, and he said that that's exactly what they did back in the you know back in in his hometown. They would wake up every morning and they would talk about their dreams, and they had a sort of a um, you know, there were accepted, traditional, handed-down beliefs about what dreams meant, and they were almost always literal, predictive. If you dream about a funeral, most likely there's a, there's going to be a wedding that's going to happen. If you dream about a wedding, there's going to be a funeral that happens. If you dream about your father's side of the family, it, you might something might not be happening with that particular cousin, but somebody on your father's side of the family is going to have something going on. So it was always paying attention to the little... Energy jumps that occur in just in the bloodlines and in the tribe. It's sort of a it was kind of a tribal or a, you know a consciousness of the the collective, as you were saying. Uh, not the collective unconscious, I don't think that Jung was talking about. This was a little bit more specific, a little bit more um, limited in some way. But I found it, once again, you know, fascinating that so many cultures, aside from ours, actually pay attention m- first and foremost to the literal possibilities of a dream that they have.
1: Yeah, and this has been problematic for Western dream analysts who've gone and lived amongst indigenous people or even just visited them in in depth research. It's it's been shocking to them and challenging and some of I'm including some of my friends in the list of Western Dream Analysts who've done this to realize how literal and matter of fact indigenous dreamers typically are. You have a dream that, you know, you're in somebody else's house, well then you check whose house you're in and whether they remember your dream visit because they understand that dreams are social. We get around, we meet other people. You have a dream in which, you know, you take the, 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 the third tree on the left and then you cross a river and then you come to a place where there are strange beings. Well, they interpret this typically as they describe it, not interpret it. They regard it as a literal visit, visitation, a literal travel, a literal trip to a location that belongs to the mythic geography of their people. But it's not mythic to them in the sense of being only mythic. It is a real geography of non-ordinary reality that they know and they travel. And in their shamanic training assignments, they, they ask each other to visit and report back on. Uh, I remember my friend Robbie Bosnak was out in the middle of my native country, Australia, talking to somebody through an interpreter, an Aboriginal spirit man, about you know dream practice. And he explained what a Jungian dream analyst does. I don't know how that translates into pigeon jarrah and then the old guy is sort of quiet and robbie's asking him you know well what do you say what is what do you say about that and uh, how do you how do you work with dreams how do you heal through dreams and this is going through the interpreter and the old guy looks at the Jungian and he says through the interpreters i become an eagle hmm. and uh, he's not talking symbolically he doesn't mean he takes on the archetype or something like that he means that to be, to be a dream healer, he becomes an eagle. He shapeshifts, and in one of his energy bodies, he operates as an eagle. I think Robbie might have got that, but a, a, the typical Western dream analyst would have a very hard idea, with, ha- hard time with the idea that in order to do something in dreaming, you literally become an eagle.
0: But yes. that, that is
1: the indigenous way. That's the shamanic way. By the way, that's the way that all of our ancestors approach dreaming. And it is the way I approach dreaming because, as you know, I'm not a new age type. I'm a paleolithic that's right. type. Yeah.
0: <laughs> well, you're kind of a journalist of the dream world, too. You know, you come back and we report, you decide. <laughs> Books by Robert well, I'm not Roth.
1: insulted by the idea of being a journalist of the dream world. Actually, I encourage people to become journalists of the dream world. Uh, but I, I would also say that I'm a pretty... Um, pretty industrious explorer. Yes. Um, and I brought, back, I brought back a few maps uh, in my time. And, of course, I encourage people to go beyond anybody else's maps. But in some of my workshops, we will journey as a group, 30, 45 people. We will journey into one of the maps that I brought back from my expeditions in non-ordinary reality and i will want people to go beyond the map i've given them and we, we 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 gather collective dream logs from this kind of thing and we are so i would say that yes we're journalists but we are also scientists of the unseen in the sense that we are accumulating a database of the kind that is net essential to understand what dreaming is i mean knowledge is state specific to understand what dreaming really is we need to accumulate databases Based on group and multiple experiences, it just become so overwhelmingly impressive that no one can any more dismiss them as anecdotal. Mm-hmm.
0: And you know, maybe in the end it does boil down to uh, you know we're sort of thinking about earlier in our discussion we were talking about uh, the idea of the soul once it passes on from this life, entering into this time of really having to sift through and understand what happened in in it one 's life, and I think maybe, even in our journalistic attempts, really it becomes more like memoir. I mean we cannot separate ourselves from the, the, our experience, but there is something incredibly helpful about having. Uh, reports back of other, of people's experience, you know, whether it's in waking life, going into a journey, a shamanic journey, or whether it's through dream or near-death experience and coming back. And so the, the rest of us back here have this whole, literally a library of people's experiences. And then we get to just choose what, what has that aha resonance for us. Yeah, that, that feels like what's going to happen to me when I die. Just, mm-hmm. You know, that that feels like where I go when I dream.
1: I quite like that. I was, uh, when I was um, on my Mohawk researches, I acquired the seventy-three volumes of the Jesuit Relations. I'm a book nut. I'm a bibliomaniac. I have to own all the books I want to read. So I <laughs> have sitting on my shelves within my line of sight the seventy-three volumes of these reports from the first Jesuit missionaries in North America. And they include they include a, a, an account which is relevant to what you just said. There's an old guy who has reluctantly agreed to except baptism but then he has a dream in which he meets his ancestors in a happy hereafter that he loves, and it's nothing like what the missionaries are telling him. When he wakes up, he says, I'm not getting baptized because I've just been where I'm going. I've seen how it is now. I have an update, so to speak, about conditions there, and that's my travel plan, and I don't need you. (laughs) (laughs) That's that's the way our approach should be. I mean, I'm not being sectarian here, but that in terms of the primacy of experience is the way our approach to these things should be. We need to through
0: first: Absolutely, and we need to dust off that compass and, and find and, and be able to recognize that sense of surety, you know that knowledge from within that, yes, this is, this is the truth for me, of where I'm going, or where I've been. Robert Moss, such a pleasure to talk to you once again and all on this special time of Samhain and, and the Days of the Dead and all of the changing and shifting of seasons and the thinning of the veils and everything. Um, you can find more about robert and his many books i'm sure actually you probably have some things that you're coming up with soon that you might want to tell us about but let me just point people to your website at mossdreams.com where you can find robert's blog and information about all the workshops and the myriad travels both seen and unseen that you're doing
1: well, I teach lots of workshops, as you know. I won't be in, the immediate, uh, in your immediate area before the end of the year. I'll be down in Portland at the beginning of December oh, if people want to come down enough. there. You'll find my, my workshop schedule. I'll be back in California next year, and I teach all over the map. So let's remember that I spent half my time on the road as a teacher of active dream, My original synthesis of shamanism and dream work, and people may be interested in checking that out.
0: Absolutely, and uh, thank you so much for your work. Bright blessing. All right. Bye. Well, there you have it. That was our interview with Robert Moss here on uh, October 29th, 2009, closing in on Samhain, Halloween, and the Day of the Dead. That ends this week's Dream Talk radio show podcast. Thanks for listening. And remember to tune in every Thursday from 9 to 10 a.m. at www.kows.fm. This is Anne Hill, and I'll see you again next week.